Today we are in Romans chapter 9, and uh, we're going to be talking about legacy, leaving a legacy. Someday when we pass on to eternity, we're going to leave people behind, those who were our family, those who were our friends, and those who saw how we lived our lives. So we leave a legacy when we pass on to eternity. So question then, what is a legacy? What do you think? A memorial to the life you live. I think it's like what can be seen of what we, of like things we, how we invested our lives in other people. What can be seen, how we invested our lives. Well, or maybe it can't be seen, but it's kind of the, the residual of how we invested our lives. The residual of how we invested our lives. Yeah. I think it becomes part of your heritage, hopefully, too. Part of your heritage. Yep. Yeah. I feel, you know, the heritage that I have, my grandma's my mother, now I pass that on to my children, hopefully my grandchildren, and, you know, that big a part of that is knowing who Kevin was. Yep, the heritage that you have from those who've come before you, grandparents, etc., and what's come down through you and what you pass on, and uh, part of uh, your heritage. Yes. The definition of legacy, if we're looking at just the how the world would describe it, it's something that's passed on to you from your family, including reputation. That's part of your legacy. So not only, though, can we leave a legacy of property, of wealth, or of fame, we can also leave a spiritual legacy. And I think that's what some of you were kind of referring to, is there's a spiritual legacy we can leave. Um, we leave a legacy of faith, of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ with our lives, a reputation of loving and following him, of being obedient to the word of God. So we're going to look at Romans 9 today and be looking at it and seeing what Paul can tell us. So take out your Bibles, turn to Romans 9, and let's start at verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I, w I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever be praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abram's offspring, for this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had in, done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? 
Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special uses and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Just, it is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. So Paul says that he has great sorrow. He starts here in, in verse one, he says, I've got great sorrow and anguish over the fellow Jews who didn't know Jesus Christ, who weren't following him. And he says, it's almost to the point of sacrificing my own salvation if I could somehow have them come to know Jesus Christ. That's a powerful desire that he had that others would follow Jesus, right? It's, it's kind of unique. Uh, such a strong desire for others to know God and to come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure if you'd see anyone like that today in the church. I mean, many times we probably feel more like King Hezekiah who said, well, at least I'm saved. And in 2 Kings 20, 16 through 19, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and he tells him, hear the word of the Lord. The time will come when everything in your palace and all, your all that your predecessors have stored up to this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, in other words, you know, grandkids, great-grandkids, some of his descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You would think that he would say, oh my goodness, I need to repent. I need to call on God for these, these descendants of mine. This is not what I want to leave to them. And then he says, the, Lord of the, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? See, he cared about himself. He wasn't looking to others. He wasn't looking to leave that legacy, that spiritual legacy to those who came after. 
And Paul shows us that we need to ask God for a passion for the lost, a passion for those who don't know God, and to be willing to be used by him to let them know what it means to follow Jesus Christ, to help them come to make that decision. It's not just about us. And we need to see that there are those around us, those people that we interact with from time to time, if not daily, who don't know Jesus Christ, who don't follow him, and it says in the word of God that they'll perish. They'll go to hell unless someone tells them about Jesus Christ. So my question today is thinking of your legacy. Are you living your life in such a way that people around you, people you know, will want to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your life surrendered to Jesus Christ, and are you willing to be used by him to share that good news? This is Paul's desire, to live a life that draws other people to Jesus Christ, to see those that he loves and cares about deeply, his own people of his own nation. He wants to see them spend eternity with Jesus Christ, not in spiritual death. And he acknowledges all that God has given the Jewish people. He's saying, hey, you have this spiritual heritage. And he says, you've got adoption as sons. God said that, God says when you're in relationship with God, you are sons of God and you can have this close personal relationship with him. They have the divine glory. I mean, think about it, the divine glory of God that filled the temple, that went with the children of Israel through the wilderness as a a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the divine glory. And people like Moses saw the glory of God. They had the covenants, the receiving of the law. God had a covenant relationship with them. He gave them the law, which was the plumb line for their lives, the thing to point them in the direction of him and needing a savior. The temple worship, the temple worship that showed them what it meant to follow God, the promises that God had given them as a nation to teach them who God is, to teach them about the Messiah and bring them into relationship with him. The patriarchs. He's saying there's all this spiritual heritage you have of people who, from Abraham on down, the patriarchs who have gone before you, the spiritual lineage to show how everyday people, these were not spiritual, unbelievable spiritual people, spiritual giants. They were used mightily by God, but they were just normal people, people like like you and I, people who were broken, people who made mistakes, anything but perfect people, and still God could use them, and still they could enter into the kingdom of God. The human ancestry of Jesus Christ, through the line of King David, the bloodline for the Messiah, who was born of a virgin, and came to live among us fully God, and yet fully man, who is God over all. And all this, this clear message from God of his love and salvation, which Israel had received through all of these blessings, all of this spiritual lineage, a covenant relationship with God in his glory to them, giving them his word through many faithful people in their past, faithful ancestors, and even when they'd been unfaithful, God had been faithful to this nation to keep drawing them back to him, down through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And with so rich of a spiritual heritage, how could they not see the truth? 
As he lists these blessings, Paul, as he lists them, he's so overwhelmed by how wonderful this all is, he can't end that list without saying, God be praised forever. Amen. And he's so grateful for what God has given them. And he tells us, it's not as though God's word has failed because you would say with all of this and then the nation not receiving it, is, is this God's word that failed? And he says, no, God's word is powerful. It accomplishes God's purpose. It doesn't fail. As it says in Isaiah 55, 11, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. This is God speaking to us. It won't return to me empty but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. See, God's word, when he speaks out his word, the word of God itself, when we read it, it heals, it restores, it renews, but it does not fail. When we are in a situation that's troubling or confusing or even dangerous, we can claim God's word in our lives. It is the power of God. Remember our theme verse for this series on the Gospel Revealed, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then the Gentile. So when we speak that powerful word of God over our situations, we proclaim the will of God over them, and it's powerful. Romans 8.15, for example, if, if you maybe are struggling with fear, and I know I'm hearing a lot of people are during this pandemic and during what's going on in the world around them, it's caused some people to have fear and have anxiety. But Romans 8.15 says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. When we follow Jesus Christ, we aren't in bondage to fear. But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba means Daddy. He's saying, I'm calling out like I would to my Father. Help, Father, help. I'm, I'm a son of God when I follow Jesus Christ, when I've accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And so I don't have to live in fear. So regarding fear, I haven't received that spirit of bondage to fear. I can cry out to my Heavenly Father. I have his power available to me so I don't live in fear. I can claim God's freedom over that spirit of fear because God's word says I can. I can say I break agreement and fellowship with that spirit of fear. I don't want anything to do with it. Lord, wash that off of my life. Wash that off of me. Get that out of my soul. I surrender it to the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, wash that off. Fill me instead with your Holy Spirit because that Holy Spirit is power, love, and a sound mind. And I claim that over my life because that's what I have in Jesus Christ. So I can be set free. And Paul wanted his fellow Jews to not just have that spiritual heritage. He wanted them to be able to have that real relationship with God through Jesus Christ so they could also leave a spiritual legacy. So how do you and I leave that spiritual legacy when we pass? Well, the first thing is make sure you have a spiritual birth into the family of God. Paul says in verse 6, all who descended from Israel are not Israel. What Paul's saying is, not all who are physical descendants, meaning they can claim that physical lineage, the father, the grandfather on back, that they are part of that nation of Israel. 
He said, not all of them are spiritual descendants. So not all who were physically Israel are spiritually Israel. And what does he mean by this? He said, it's not just being a natural child, born in the natural, but being the child of the relationship with God, a child of promise is how he's talking about it. Those who had faith and believed. God gives that opportunity to, to everyone to follow him. And he gives two examples to the people there of, of things that would be recognizable. Abraham had two children, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the one that God wanted to work through to bring the message of God to the people of the earth. So he chose Isaac, the child of promise. And then Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, God knew ahead of time because God knows all. He knew that Jacob was the one he wanted to work with and work through. And Esau didn't exactly receive that. Remember, Esau strayed away from the things of God. So God chose these descendants to work through and to accomplish his purposes. Those who would choose to follow him, those whose hearts would be right. So is God unjust? Paul asks us, is God unjust? Like he picked this guy and not this guy? I mean, because he accomplished his purposes through certain people? Not at all. No, God says he'll give mercy and compassion to those he chooses but even people who have hard hearts toward God, God will still accomplish his purpose. He gives the example of the Pharaoh. Now, I'm sure the Pharaoh wasn't thinking, hey, I'm going to be used by God right now. And uh, he probably didn't want to be used by God. But it's like what we were singing about. Sometimes God closes doors. Sometimes things don't work out. But it's really God working through it to accomplish his will. So even someone with a hard heart toward God, God can still use them to accomplish his will. His purposes are over all. But we don't earn that calling of God. That's something God gives each of us. Uh, and that's a good thing we don't have to earn it, right? The calling of God on each of our lives that is from God, we don't have to earn it. It's there for us to accept and choose to follow if, if we want. If we don't follow Jesus Christ, if we don't accept that will, we are going to be living our lives in a way, though, that is not going to be living the kind of legacy that we would want to leave. No matter what our desires might be, Paul says, no matter how much effort we might use, God's mercy and compassion don't depend on us. It's God who chooses. So how we leave the spiritual legacies, we make sure first that we're born into the family of God, a spiritual birth by accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then secondly, find out what God made you to do, that calling that we're talking about. Find out what that is. Um, in America, uh, you know, we think that God created you to do a certain thing and he's called you to do it. In America, we probably don't like that so much. Uh, we kind of think of ourselves as being kind of independent, uh, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, kind of like I can do anything I can put my mind to, right? Don't you hear that? I mean, I hear that sometimes uh, on, on TV, that people say, all you need to do is just really try really hard, and then it'll work out. Well, what, why is that part of our culture a problem for followers of Jesus Christ? Why do you think? Try everything first before we go to God. Well, it's wonderful 
As long as we think we're adequate, we won't turn to God unless he shows us our need. Well, the other thing is, too, um, what he says here, those who question God about why things are the way they are and how God made them are kind of like that lump of clay, he says. <laughs> he says there's a lump of clay, and the potter makes what he chooses of it. And the clay doesn't talk back to the potter and say, why did you make me like this? The potter chooses how he makes things and for what use. And it says some are for noble uses or, you know, like our fine china, and some are for common use. So he might be making a water jar or maybe a set of dishes or a candle base or maybe even a toilet. But the potter chooses what he makes. With us, God has made us all different and given us different gifts and abilities and we didn't choose that. And no matter how much effort I put in it, no matter what I desire, that's not going to change how God made me. Um, I can work and work and work on something, but if that's not what God put in within my DNA and within my heart um, and how he wired me, it's not going to work out. For example, I might decide I might want to be an Olympic gymnast. What do you think? Um, and I might work really hard at it. Uh, but at best, those of you who know me, I mean, I'm a little tall for one thing, but um, at best, I'd be mediocre. <laughs> Why would I be spending hours and hours? You hear some of those Olympic athletes, they spend like all day, every day, working on their stuff. So imagine if I did that, and that's not what God called me to do. What would happen? Not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> But if I find out what God has for me to do, then that's what I want to be doing. Um, and thank God for that ability and ask him to accomplish in me the thing he has for me to do through me. I don't choose something else because I shouldn't. And if I look at someone else and think, man, I wish I could be doing that, I don't talk smack to God and tell him that I don't like what he gave me to do. I say thank you, God, that you've made me for, I praise you for what this person's doing, and I praise you for what you're doing in my life. Lord, help me to be the best person I can to follow what you've called me to do, because that's part of my spiritual legacy. God's purposes for us are where we find his mercy and his compassion. We all have something we were made to do that would count for eternity, and when we do that, that's what we pass on to others, about our faithfulness to follow Jesus Christ, our faithfulness to do what he's shown us to do. Moses found that, kind of a sweet spot, right, of following what God had for him to do. And because of that, he was privileged to see God's glory. In Exodus 33, 18 and 19, God, Moses says to God, now show me your glory. That's pretty bold, huh? How awesome, because it was said that if you saw the glory of God, you wouldn't live. And Moses is saying, I want to see God's glory. He loved God. He wanted to follow God. And he says, God, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I'm going to cause all of my goodness, all of my glory to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And he said, as he passed by, he would see the back of his glory. How awesome. For those 
who say no to following Jesus Christ, who don't want to do what God's got for them, who determine to not follow God or Jesus Christ. It says that they are objects of God's wrath. That means that they, when they go into eternity, they will face judgment. But even so, in spite of themselves, like we said, it doesn't matter if they push back against God, God's purposes still will prevail in the world, but not in their lives. God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. His purposes will prevail. And even those who live in sin, who will reap what they sow, they will be judged for their sins. God's purposes is so much bigger than that. Think of Judas, who turned on Jesus. He sold Jesus to the high priest for a cost of a slave. Yet it was Judas' sin that put Jesus on the cross. That was part of God's plan. So sometimes when things look really bad, it might be part of what God's plan is. You know? And so we just need to be praying and making sure that we personally are doing what God has for us to do. There was the power of the resurrection, God's purposes for salvation and the power of the resurrection through that whole event. And we as followers of Jesus Christ now know the riches of his glory. So who are the people, the objects of God's wrath that uh, Paul is talking about here? Did God only have some people that he wanted to call? I mean, it, it, you could read this and think that God has a purpose for these people and these other people are just fodder for God's wrath. But is that really what he's saying here? If we look at other parts of scripture, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God didn't just call a few, he calls us all. But the belief of the Jewish people was that they were the special group of people who God called. And others were not. They didn't like the Gentiles. They thought they weren't worthy. They thought the Gentiles were dogs. I mean, culturally, there was a lot of tension between Jews and Gentiles. They did not like them. In fact, even that group of Samaritans who were half Jewish and half Gentile, they despised them because they were half Gentile. They, that's why Paul is addressing this within the church, because you have a church here that's made up of Gentiles and Jews, and he's addressing this thing because they need to know this. Um, one group of believers are not better than another because of race. And this is true today as well. All of us are of equal value and worth before God. And we should be there for each other. We should speak up for things. When we hear of discrimination or racism, we should speak up for our brothers and sisters who are people of color and say, that's not right. That shouldn't be like that. That needs to change. We should make sure that we vote for people that represent us and our beliefs. We need to educate ourselves. We need to do the work to learn the subtleties of of prejudice and racism so we can change, so that we don't, by our silence, become people who uh, encourage those other people who are being hurtful and hateful or dangerous. So we, as the church, need to say that's not God's will. God's word says there's nobody that's better than another person before God when they come to the cross. There's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. We're all the same 
before Jesus Christ. And so when we see that there's something going on that's not right, we need to stand up and say, no, that cannot happen under our watch. We can also fall victim to this idea of being better than others in another way, too. We can think that we as the church, you know, we're saved. We're, we're followers of Christ, so we're better than those who aren't. And we can't live like that either. We need to have the love of God, and we need to be able to reach out to people around us. if they, We want to help them see that God wants them all to come to faith. And if someone is different than us, we just praise God for his creativity, okay? <laughs> Everyone needs to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. So when Paul is talking about being called here, he's obviously not talking about like some are better than others. So what does he mean by that word called? Well, Greek here for the word called, when you look at that original Greek, it means invited, summoned, called by name. See, God invites us to come. He invites us to be part of his plan. He invites us to be part of the family of God. He calls and summons us to him. He calls you by name to come to know him. And then we respond. We either follow Jesus Christ or we refuse. But we are called. One of the characteristics of God is um, his omniscience. Omniscience means all-knowing. And that means that he's, he knows all. He's not bound by time. He's eternal. He's outside of time. In fact, he created time. And so because he's eternal, because he knows the beginning from the end, remember Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, because he knows that, he knows who's going to respond to his invitation. But he still invites us all. And when we follow Jesus Christ, he says his riches and his mercy are made known to us. Paul says in verse 24, God calls not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, and prepares things for us to do for his glory. So, group question here again, why was that so important for the church to know there in Rome that God called both Jews and Gentiles? Because Jesus died for us all. So they'd treat each other with respect and love, and they would get along. That they'd be all-inclusive. Yeah, that there'd be a unity there. The church then and now needs to see that God can use all of us. He can use us all, no matter what our background, no matter what our race, our color, our socioeconomic status. Uh, Everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ can be a leader, can be a minister, a teacher, an evangelist, a prophet, or whatever gift God has given you, you can do that and you are not held back by any of your background, any of who you are. God says, if I call you to do a thing, I'm going to empower you to do that. And it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. He prepared in advance things for us to do for his glory. How awesome. Just think, the thing that God called you to do is for his glory. So if you're called to be a teacher, do that for the glory of God. If you're called to be an accountant, do that for the glory of God. If you're called to be a mom or a dad, do that for the glory of God. No matter what, retail, uh, barista, whatever you're called to do, do it for the glory of God. Paul said, 
I will call them my people who are not my people. Sons and descendants of the living God. That means we are God's people. Not just Jewish people, but all people who come to know Jesus Christ and follow him. We are the people of God. Isn't that cool? We started out not as people, but now we are his people. He loves us. We, are, we can even say, Abba, Father. He's like our heavenly father. No matter what your earthly father was like, your heavenly father loves you, cares about you, values you, and wants you to become all he created you to be. And he empowers you by the Holy Spirit to do that when you follow Jesus Christ. Paul said, even though there's many Israelites, only the believing remnant will be saved. He's telling them this so they understand just because you have this spiritual heritage doesn't mean that you're automatically in eternity with God. He said only the believing remnant will be saved. So what's a remnant? I used to do a lot of sewing when my kids were little. I used to make clothes for them and I did a lot of sewing and you know there were some places that sold remnants. And remnants are like a bolt of fabric is like 40, somewhere between 40 and 100 yards, depending on what kind of thing you're buying. And they roll off and measure it for you and cut it. But a remnant's that little piece that's left over. Sometimes it's just this much. Sometimes it could be up to a yard. But that's what's left. And so what Paul is saying is that all the Jewish people, it's the remnant who remain faithful. Those who are left over who are faithful and haven't turned from God. Those are the ones that are saved. And it's by your commitment to Jesus Christ. It's not by your spiritual heritage. So if I go to church every day for the rest of my life, but I am not following Jesus Christ, I've never made that decision to follow him and say, Lord, I surrender my life to you, I'm not going to be part of that group of faithful, the remnant that will go on and go into eternity with Jesus Christ. It's all based on my decision to follow him. And it says that God someday is going to carry out his sentence, his judgment, with speed and finality. At the great white throne judgment, this is at the end of time, as we know it. Revelation 20, 11 to 15 talks about a great white throne, and God is seated on this great white throne. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, that is the determining factor. Is your name written in the book of life? Have you made that decision to follow Jesus Christ? So this end, this sentence, this judgment is determined for us each individually by our names, whether they are written or not written in the book of life. Now that sounds like, whoa, have I, have I done enough to get my name there? Well, guess what? It's so cool. In Revelation 3, 5, it says, the one who is victorious will, 
will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. In other words, you start out with your name written there. God wants for you, your name to be written in the book of life. And what happens is as you go through life, if you do not make that decision to follow Jesus Christ, your name, when you pass away, spiritually this happens, your name is blotted out. So if you want to follow Jesus Christ and know your name is written in that book of life, that's what you need to do is just pray and say, Jesus Christ, I follow you. I want you as my Lord and Savior. And then our name is in the book of life. So we need to make sure that we are children birthed into the family of God. We need to make sure that we find out what God made us to do. And then to leave a legacy, the last thing we need to do is to pursue a life of faith and righteousness. And for that, let's read the last few verses of chapter 9 here together. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So what that's telling us is Paul not saying here that only certain people can have eternal life. He's saying that it's not by our efforts or by our birth into a special group of people that gives us salvation. And the Gentiles who were idolatrous when they heard the gospel, he's saying here they responded by faith. And because of that, they obtained righteousness. And what that means about obtaining righteousness, that's seizing tight hold of it. So they, re in the original Greek, and so what that means is they realized their sinfulness and they grabbed onto what God had for them by faith and they received the righteousness as part of it. And they knew that they needed the Savior. Israel, on the other hand, it says, just pursued a law of righteousness. So what that's saying is they kept a checklist, and they didn't attain righteousness because they're pursuing it as if it were by works, and that's not what God says the way is. So here's the thing, though. If we're not careful, we can fall into a little bit of this mindset today. You know, we think, well, yes, I don't earn my salvation, but now I've got to earn that I got it. And so every day we're keeping a checklist of the things we need to do to earn God's favor. And what's so dangerous about that way of thinking is that we think we come to God by works when it's by faith. And even once we have salvation, it's still that we come by faith. We never really give our hearts to Jesus, maybe, if we're, if we're living like that. Or we think that when life is tough, hey, I've been living a good life, what's up, God? God, you owe me. You know how much money I've been giving to church? God, you owe me. You know how much I've given up for you? See, you can end up thinking that, or a little bit that way, and that's why that's dangerous to be thinking it's all about a checklist. Does our behavior matter? Oh, sure. 
We want our lives to honor and glorify God, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, showing us what to do. There may be things that says laying down weights and sins. In other words, sometimes there are things that are hindrances to you that are not sinful in and of themselves, but God says that's not for you. And so what we need to do is understand if it's just a checklist, then I'm just doing the perfunctory thing. Then I'm a Pharisee living my life like it's all about keeping these rules. And it's about so much more. How we honor the Lord Jesus Christ with our life has so much more than a checklist. It's about our hearts being right, being surrendered to Jesus Christ, and living in a way that honors and glorifies him. Paul points out it's not by works that we have righteousness. It's by faith that we attain righteousness. Israel stumbled over the stumbling block. And in Greek, it says they took offense at the stumbling block. They took offense at the rock, Jesus Christ. They recoiled from Jesus because he failed to meet their expectation of who the Messiah would be. And when we have expectations of what our life should look like and how things should be, when our focus is on what we're getting out of it and on ourselves and it's not on Jesus Christ and following him, when we get offended at God when things go differently than what we think they should, when they're not what we expected, we'll stumble, we'll fall, and we won't have that relationship with Jesus Christ that we should have. What we need to do is give that offense over to Jesus and receive what God has for us and be the people he created us to be. It says in this passage, the ones who put their trust in him will never be put to shame. And that's us when we follow Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me as we close? So, leaving a spiritual legacy. That's what we're talking about today. And so let's just think about that for, as it applies to us. If you just bow your head, the first thing about living uh, in a way that can leave a spiritual legacy is to trust Jesus Christ, to receive him as your Lord and Savior, and to follow what he wants for you to do. And if you have never done that before today, Would you just raise your hand and say, today's the day I want to do that. Okay, thank you. And secondly, think about, are you leaving a spiritual legacy for those who are your family, your friends, those you know? If you want to make a commitment today, make a fresh commitment to live a life that honors Jesus Christ and to fulfill his purposes through you, just raise your hand. Thank you. Lord God, we thank you that we can be in the family of God, your children, by accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you died and rose again for us, that you suffered on that cross to bear our sins so that we can come into relationship with God and we can turn that over to you. Lord, we can follow you. Jesus, help us to live lives that honor and glorify you. Help us to live in a way that we can leave that spiritual heritage, that people would say, he lived that kind of a life. She lived that kind of a life that honored God. I saw them, no matter, they weren't perfect people, 
but I saw them consistently following what God had for them to do. I saw them find that sweet spot, that ministry, that, that career, that, that position in the church, that position in the community. I saw them do what God had called them to do. I saw them show the love of God to everyone. I saw them be the kind of person that you would want them to be, Lord Jesus. I saw that, and they left me that spiritual legacy. Lord God, I pray that all of us, when we pass away, that there would be something left behind of our reputation of being people that honor and glorify you. So, Father, we thank you for this encouragement from Paul today. Lord God, we thank you that we have your mercy and the riches of your glory available to us as we follow you. Thank you, Jesus. Give us opportunity this week to be those people that you created us to be. Help us not look at things in a way that's all about us, but help us to look at things in a way that's about you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your mighty name, amen. Amen.